When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I interview Ashley Bendixson, who is an expert in abuse prevention and personal development and a national speaker and top youth speaker. She's also a certified life empowerment coach, author, nonprofit founder, award-winning activist and founder of the Blue Hearts Project. We are going to talk about domestic violence and how domestic violence impacts one in four women and countless individuals of all gender identities. Ashley tells her story, how she experienced domestic violence and how she's turned her experience into helping others. But before we begin, I just want to remind you that this year we are doing my conference live. Last year we had to do it virtually because of the pandemic, but this year we are back in person in Dallas, Texas, 2nd through 4th of December, and it's going to be amazing. We've all battled. Anxiety has tripled over the pandemic. Our children have suffered. The elderly have suffered. We've all battled, and I'm going to tackle this head on. I'm going to be having very, doing very practical sessions on how to manage your mind, how to get this anxiety under control, the depression under control, the impact of COVID on our mental health. Very practical sessions, fantastic guest speakers. I can let you know about one, Michelle Williams, who's a very good friend of mine, who used to sing with Destiny's Child. She's going to be talking about her story of how she got through severe depression, how she managed, learned to manage her mind and manage her depression. And one more thing before we begin, this podcast is meant for educational purposes and is not medical advice. If you need medical advice, please contact the appropriate medical professional. And back to today's podcast. Ashley, it's such an honor to interview you. You discuss such an important topic and have made an impact in so many people's lives. You talk about that hard talk about subject abusive relationships and you've also written a book about caring for someone with alzheimer's so this is going to be a very very important and fascinating conversation thank you for joining me today caroline thank you for having me truly my honor oh it's lovely to really lovely to talk to you okay you have a very huge story and when i listened to you at the first time listened to one of the podcast interviews you did i was really taken aback by just you know how well you expressed and talked about an incredibly difficult subject and you have so much wisdom and advice so Can we start by you telling your listeners and my listeners and viewers about your story and about you and what happened and what you do? So that'll be fantastic. Yes, my career path is definitely one that I never imagined would be mine. And it really is was born out of my own struggles in life, my own traumas. So from the age of 14 to 20, I was a repeat victim of domestic and sexual violence. And it totally turned my life upside down. Not only were my relationships damaging to myself, my self-esteem, but it undid all of my goals, all of my aspirations. Long story short, I found myself as a college dropout, homeless, penniless. I was disconnected from my family. And really at the age of 20, 
I found myself at rock bottom and, you know, my abusive relationship in college that kind of ended that whole chapter only ended because I tried to end the relationship. And unfortunately I was severely attacked. And in those few first days of recovering and embarking on this new journey and turning my life around, I just remembered feeling so fed up with what I had tolerated, looking back at everything that I had thrown away, how I had let not only bad partners, but bad peers and just everything outside of me dictate my life, that I felt compelled to do something, not only to change my life, but impact the lives of others too. And so I didn't know exactly how. I knew I wanted to give back. I started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter. And within about nine months, they asked if I would speak and share my story at an event. I was terrified, but I I did it. And I've been telling my story ever since then. And this just became my mission, my life's work. I eventually went back to school, studied the criminal justice system, graduated top of my class. After Congratulations. All Thank you. It's still surreal. And uh, yeah, victim advocacy, prevention, education has just been my work ever since. And at one point, I decided to pursue speaking and raising awareness of these issues full time and left my state job in the justice system to to do what I do now. And essentially, I'm traveling the U.S. and I primarily speak in schools because I think that's where we need the education most. And in addition to that, I train the military a few times a year. I train workplaces and I'm also a coach for women and survivors who are really rebuilding their lives after relationship trauma or any moment where they woke up one day and and felt like they just were invisible to themselves and finally wanted to put their lives back together. So my my work is informed by my life and it feels like a gift every day to be doing what I'm doing now because at one point it certainly felt impossible. Oh wow. I mean really inspired. Just just listening to you again. Every time I listen to you I feel so inspired to have gone from that but at such a young age, but between 14 and 20 to be homeless, penniless, disconnected from your family, multiple abuse. And I want people to hear your actual story. I know you've told it a million times, but it's just so powerful. But to have gone from that to coming back and getting a degree in the very area that you now understand, you experienced, you became now understanding this, the, the, the law and the criminology, the aspect behind it, and then now giving back to society, a complete and utter reconceptualization of your life and how you've taken that pain and transformed and now you help others. I mean, that's just so admirable. And that is why I wanted to get you on the podcast today for people to hear the inspiration of your story that when you're feeling like you can just, like life is just over and you want to give up, that there is hope that, they, that you can turn your life around. And I know that you can probably attest to this, that when you're in that situation, if someone told you when you're down and out, there's a chance to turn your life around, you probably didn't feel that. So that's one of the aspects I'd love to talk about as well is that what was, and it would never be just one thing, but how did you get from that point to the point that you're at today? And once we've talked about your story, I'm sure it'll just filter into your story, but it's inspirational, it's helpful. And then I'd love us to really dive into the aspects of recognizing abuse because you have some incredible tips to help friends and family recognize when a friend or family is being abused and what can one do and get into that side of, of practical things as well. So it's a lot to cover but you're the perfect person to cover it. So let's begin at the beginning. Let's start, give us your story and then let's transition from there. 
Sure. So my first dating relationship ever, I was 14 years old. I had never experienced dating, didn't know anything about it. I came from a small town, you know, pretty traditional family, healthy enough. And, you know, and had never been exposed to anything like abuse, domestic violence, really didn't know what it was. And like many young people, you know, this first boyfriend was, he was dreamy. He was older. He was on the baseball team. He chose me out of all the girls. And I remembered feeling so special, you know, like why would this person choose me? And so I fell head over heels very quickly. Of course, this was this was a while ago. So we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have social media. It was very much a phone relationship. He would call my parents' house. That was our relationship. Unfortunately, as we started to you know, phone date for a little while longer, eventually he started to pressure me into potentially hanging out in person. He encouraged me to lie to my parents so we could spend more time together. And that first date that we actually spent in person together did not go any way as I had imagined or hoped it would. He was very coercive. He tried to pressure me into doing things that I didn't want to do. And while that's very common for first dates, teens, you know, they need to learn communications and how to ask questions and talk about consent beforehand. Unfortunately for me, that wasn't just a a misunderstanding on the first date. He became extremely sexually abusive for the next two years of my life, in addition to verbal and emotional abuse. So, you know, one minute we'd be hanging out and he was sweet. He was that guy that I was crazy about. And then the next he would pressure me or coerce me or nag me to the point where I felt like I just had to do what he wanted. Or he would do things like call me names, make jokes. And then if I got upset, he would say, stop acting like a baby. Right. And so as a teenager, yeah, you know, as a teenager, it gets really challenging because it's a lot of complex emotions and feelings and dynamics going on. And I didn't know how to handle what was happening. I also wasn't sure if what I was going through was normal. I thought this was just part of dating. And so I kept it to myself and it spiraled into a whole bunch of other negative side effects. He told his friends stories that turned into huge rumors and bullying by my whole small school for the most part. And so every day was hard. So as a as a teenager, I struggled with, you know, disordered eating habits, body dysmorphia, self-esteem issues. I dabbled with substances. I was self-harming because I just didn't know what else to do. Definitely did not feel like I could talk to my parents or an adult about something that was so personal. And eventually that relationship ended after about two years, was relieved at that, still working through difficult, you know, emotions and my own mental health struggles. But it was just the beginning of many abusive relationship dynamics. I was sexually assaulted multiple times by multiple different people over the next gosh years. So sorry. Yeah, thank you. And and then that all culminated with this college boyfriend where I felt like now I had experienced a bad relationship. I knew what to look out for, knew the warning signs. I still had no idea. Found myself in another abusive relationship, and it was classic textbook domestic violence where I was isolated from my family and friends in the beginning, stopped doing the things I loved, couldn't focus on school. And eventually he 
totaled my car, drained my bank accounts, forced me to drop out of college. And it all just came crashing down. Yeah. So that was a big phase of my life. It was a long phase of, you know, believing that I believing that I was strong, that I was tough, that I was just meant to be dealt difficult situations and I just had to figure them out or just wait for them to pass. I just, I really believe that my life was destined to be a struggle and I just had to respond to it. And so I think when it all ended, you know, having this sudden revelation of I've just, I don't know who I am. I haven't been living for myself this whole Time, I really just, uh, I no longer wanted to tolerate that mindset or that lifestyle. And it just, it created a spark. You know, I, often I've said it was like an aha moment, but I really think it was me hearing my intuition and my own voice for the first time in a long time where she was saying, Ashley, none of this has been your fault. Now go, let it go and move on and do you, right? Do you for once, because I, that was such an, a foreign thought to me. And so rock bottom really did change my life because I had a blank slate and I knew I could build whatever I wanted from it. Sometimes I find it extremely hard and stressful to ensure I'm getting all the nutrition my brain and body needs to function at an optimal level. And far too often I find supplements and powders ridiculously overpriced. That's why I love the all-in-one single scoop formula from Athletic Greens. Mac and I take it to support our gut health, immune systems, improve our energy and mental clarity. The daily beverage provides 75 highly absorbable vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients. Their formula gives you a daily multivitamin, probiotic, prebiotic, green blend and adaptogens like ashwagandha and rhodiola. Used to address stress and anxiety or without the need to take any pills or multiple products. If you want to simplify your routine, reduce the stress of taking multiple things and drink something that actually tastes good, then adding Athletic Greens is worth a try. They are offering my readers an incredible immune-supporting bundle with a year's supply of vitamin D and five travel packs free with your subscription today. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf and join health experts, athletes and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. The link and details will be in the show notes. That's incredible. But you in you in that in, in part of that story, I love the fact that you actually said do you, Ashley, do you. So actually what what's fascinating there is that I talk I talk a lot about what what fascinating with what you said about seeing yourself and realizing you needed to listen to your own voice is that neurobiologically, psycho-neurobiologically, mind, brain, body, we have this wise mind, which is our self. It's, it's the inner wisdom. It's that knowing in your knower. And we've got to let that work with our messy mind. Messy mind experiences life, but wise mind is giving us this wisdom. And you, you just described that. You were in this reactive situation for so many years and thinking that, that that was it. And then you realize that's not it. And you started tuning into yourself. And it's at that point that you started moving forward and changing your life. Would you mind just sharing before we move on with that, the changes and what you've learned and the tips and things that people can get from you and, and, and advice is what actually happened at the end of the relationship. Because it was really, it didn't just end, it was very severe. I mean, you, and this is a very relevant thing that happens to so many women when they leave abusive relationships that you left. And then would, would you mind picking up on the story just as you realized you can't take this anymore? I think the greatest factor that I had working in my favor at the time was that I had a huge mindset shift, that I was able to 
do what you were just saying, be objective and remove myself from my story and look at it and really see the truth of what was going on. And knowing that I now was determined and driven to change my life really kept me going each day. I mean, the journey for any survivor is is challenging and the road is long and I'm still healing. I mean, I'll probably be healing my whole life. Yeah, the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Right, my conditioning. But, you know, I think I took one day at a time. You know, at first it was, okay, I can't change my whole life overnight, but I need to find a safe place to live. And I really learned to be self-reliant. And I think one sentiment that played in my head often was, if I could get through that, I can get through anything. And I knew that I was strong because I had been surviving all along. And so I knew that just one day at a time, getting my basic needs in order, you know, seeking help if I needed it, that I would eventually come out of this whole spell. And so, yeah, it was a lot of journaling. It was a lot of self-care, taking long walks, being introspective, and really envisioning the life that I wanted. Even though I didn't know all those details or all the pieces, just knowing that there, there had to be more and I wanted more and I was going to do whatever it took to figure it out. Having that mindset is just what kept me going each day. And in a way, it it's what allowed me to see opportunities, to put myself in alignment, to attract the things that I needed to help me heal because I was constantly thinking about healing and, and progressing. Oh, that's amazing. And you start seeing that. That's the whole principle of whatever you think about the most will grow in your brain. So your mind is the thinking part. Your brain is the responsive part. And then it starts, you start seeing things. You start seeing, it's like if you focus just on the negative and you focus on the positive, it's the immersion of what your mind and brain will merge with. So that's such a valid point that you raised. So just that's, that's such a, and that wasn't an easy journey. I mean, it's still ongoing. So I love the fact that you've raised that it's, it's an ongoing journey because often when people will hear someone's story and they look at you and you're beautiful and successful and you've achieved so much and they think, well, was it that bad? It was that bad. I mean, it was terrible. And I don't think people consciously think of that, but they think, how did you turn this around so quickly? I can't, oh, oh I can't turn it around so quickly. Maybe I said, you know, the different, different ways people can look at it that, gosh, you've pulled through so quickly. How did that, I can't pull so quick through so quickly, all that kind of thing. But this was a long journey. This was tiny little bits of, of change at a time. It's not like you were there yesterday like that and today now you're like this. This has been years of transition and day to day accumulation. Am I right? That's, you know, not a, not a quick journey, this. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's definitely people say, you know, the overnight success, you don't see what goes on behind the scenes. And it is a long process. I do, however, think that with the right mindset, that process can be much shorter and faster and more effective. Because I did quickly attract opportunities my way that, you know, someone else might not because they're in that that mind space of, I can't, you know, there's nothing out there for me. What now? Why me? You're not going to attract what you need to then take that next step in your life. So your mindset really does help speed up that process for sure. I love that you've said that because I teach all about the mind, as you know, and the mind-brain connection and it's your mind drives everything. And we have this optimism bias in us, which is this wisdom, this wise mind. And even in our biology, we have, we wired for love. So we drawn to the negative, not because we want to be in it, because we want to find the balance. So what you're talking about, if I hear you correctly, is the mindset that got you shifted was you recognize that that's the negative, but you you started seeing balance, but there's a counter. There's a, how can I fix this? And that's the shift, if I'm hearing you correctly, because that's from my research, what I've seen and from my patients in my own life is that 
The shift comes when you, this is, you're not suppressing the negative. You're not denying. That's what's happened. That's the reality. And, but you don't want to fix it, to restore the balance as opposed to I'm stuck in it. So that's the wise mind talking to the messy mind and moving forward. And I hear you talking. So thank you for talking about the mindset because I agree with you. That's so vital and it's so hard. And that's where we need the support systems because sometimes you can be so stuck in that negative. You need people around you to help see another perspective, to help mm-hmm. you to visit, see those kinds of things. What I wanted to ask you now, on a, let's go to a practical level. The, the, cause you, you actually, when you left, cause you decided to leave and then your ex-boyfriend came back and nearly murdered you, didn't he? I mean, there was like, it was quite severe. And that can, that kind of situation can happen to women. So what are practical, talk about that. And then let's talk about now, let's move over to signs and some t- signs and warning signals and what we can do and, you know, all the sort of practical side of, of abusive relationships, recognizing them, et cetera. So let's talk about, start with in your situation when you're in that and you recognized you had to leave because a lot of people will be listening to that that are at that point now. What would the steps be? What happened to you? How did you do it? And obviously there's not a cookie cutter approach, but what are some basic sort of tools and, and, and ways that one can move in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, it's a you big know, question. For, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that severe relationship in college that went on for two years. And I used to repeat to myself, well, it's not that bad because he's never hit me. And of course, now I know better that emotional abuse is just as bad, if not worse than physical harm. But I didn't see it as abusive or aggressive or violent or any of those things. I just thought he had issues. He had trauma in life. And I was trying to be patient and empathetic and understanding. And so I put up with it for a long time. And I- Trauma bonding. Oh, totally, totally. And I finally started to consider leaving only after he became physically aggressive towards me because it was almost like an an internal standard that I had. Well, once he hits me, then I'm out because how can I, you know, how can I rationalize staying with that when really I rationalize staying with worse? But so that's what that's what tipped it for me. And unfortunately for many in abusive relationships, that is the progression of abuse. It does eventually get physical and it might not even be that they hurt you, but maybe they're breaking objects, they're slamming doors, they're driving erratically. And that's a big red flag. I think many women, at least from my work, they get to a point where they realize that they just can't do it anymore. They've given someone too many chances. Uh, They've heard too many apologies. They've thrown away really big, important things, and they're just at their wits end. And the idea of staying suddenly feels more damaging than trying to just leave and, and do something new. And so, you know, when I came to that realization for myself, I thought I was doing the courageous thing by breaking up and ending the relationship, but I did it on my own thinking, I know him, I know how to handle his fits and how he responds. And I thought he handled it well. He said, okay, he packed his bags, he left. And then two weeks later, he came back and attacked me. And this is very common that one of the most dangerous times for someone in in an abusive relationship is right when they end the relationship. So, you know, a big tip there is to include other people, have a plan, you know, plan ahead of time to change your locks just in case. Tell friends, have someone around you when you're breaking up. Do it by phone if you have to. Talk to an advocate at a local shelter. The biggest mistake you can make is just thinking you can do it on your own and that there's no chance that they're going to react irrationally because it's very likely that they'll retaliate. So, definitely include someone in that process. 
That's absolutely valuable advice and it's essential advice is not to be alone to. It's so interesting that you also brought up how you it's, it, it progress from the emotional to the physical, but there's all those red flags along the way, you know, breaking items and so on. That's so interesting because it's, it's amazing how much we as humans will are drawn to restore the balance. So you kept thinking you could help, you knew him and how long, and this is so often the case. So many women that I've worked with in the past and in my career, when I practice clinically and just working in situations like this, it's, so, it's how the human nature is so, so desirous of repair and believing the best in people. And that's, I think, what keeps women in relation, in abusive relationships, this desire to, hey, it's going to get fixed because of the times when the person is nice. You know, mm-hmm. but there's still, there's the red flag. So could we for a moment just talk about, because I think so many people can relate to this. What are the red flags? You you mentioned a few and let's just be specific about them because I think this is very relevant. And what are the red flags that you mm-hmm. actually should be getting out of a relationship and then getting that plan together that you mentioned? Yeah. One of the earliest red flags is definitely this over-dependence on wanting to see you more often than you might be used to. And that results in isolation. So for many in relationships that might become abusive, one person wants to spend all of their time with you. And often it happens in a very subtle way. You know, I think people instantly think to themselves, well, if someone told me I can't see my friends, I wouldn't date them. But it happens without you seeing it happening. So they might say, Oh, you know, like my partner would say, oh, you're going to go see your friend today. I've just, I've missed you all day. And I was really looking forward to seeing you. And so there's guilt tripping, there's manipulation, you feel bad, or maybe now you're doing a group date. And before you know it, at a certain point, you're not seeing your friends as much. You're not seeing your family. They might even be belittling your friends and family to the point where now you're pretty much spending all of your time with them. And from there, you start to lose basically anything else that's yours in your life, your hobbies, your passions, your interests, they start to all take a backseat to your partner's emotional needs and emotional responses. A lot of jealousy can come up. They might have insecurities. And, you know, if you care about someone, if they have an insecurity, you want to do what you can to help them feel relaxed, know that they can trust you. And you do a lot just to satisfy their own struggles. And all of a sudden, one day you find yourself where everything in your life is being filtered internally through what your partner will say, think, do. And it just suddenly takes over overnight. Another big one too is threats, sudden mood swings. You know, one minute they're happy and they're great and they're that person you met and fell in love with. And then the next minute they are just upset over who knows what. You have no idea why they're upset at you. And it's just, it's really confusing and, and complex. And, you know, one of the one of the most common indicators of abuse is that cycle that happens where you go from this really happy moment to this tension building, you know, your partner's going to get upset or they're bothered by something. There's a huge argument. And then you're right back to cloud nine again. And that can go on and on, you know, a few times a week. It can happen a few times in one day. And this just becomes your norm. But, you know, I, I often say the biggest red flag is just wondering if something is a red flag. 
we really need to be intentional about listening to our intuition. And I believe we know when something is wrong and we have to listen to it the first time and not try to rationalize why we'll just wait and see if things get better. Because I think along the way, there were many moments my intuition was trying to speak to me and I didn't listen. So yeah, just wondering if something is wrong is a red flag. Feeling like you're being mistreated or like a partner is abusive is a red flag. This is so important. And the way that you've stressed your intuition is excellent because that really is something that we all have that inner intuition, that inner wisdom. And it's like on a scientific level, this is, it's totally there. It's, and it's something that I spend so much time trying to teach people that it's okay to be messy, but you've got to listen to that wisdom and you've got to develop it. It's a skill you, and if you don't practice it, you can, you can miss the intuition. And you, you know, you've, you've explained that so clearly. So in an abusive relationship, is that any kind of na nagging, hey, something's not right here. Don't just override that because of the nicety of the moment. You know, those cycles of the tension and then the release is, you know, you've got to almost like objectively, if I understand you, you've got to objectively, you know, stand back and observe and say, okay, how often am I feeling this? And what does it mean? Don't just suppress it, but actually become curious about it and really question it and look for the patterns. Would that be something as well as to start recognizing the patterns, becoming much more an analytical about those and say, hey, this is happening six or seven times a week. This is really what's happening. Perhaps even writing it down, would that be something that could be done? You know, write it down because when you see it in writing, you're forcing yourself to face something. And when you write, you tend to pull out what's really going on and what the intuition will come out more effectively. You know, to start actually becoming quite analytical about what the situation is, which may help a person move through to getting out of the relationship a little quicker. Because isn't the, doesn't the research show that women stay in abusive relationships for quite long? Mm, I believe the average attempts at leaving is seven to nine attempts before finally doing it. Yeah. You know, I think for many who are in these dynamics, you, you go into management mode and you're just on auto at all times. Right. And you have to somehow step outside of that. And for me, the first time that I finally started to look objectively at my relationship and seeing the patterns and the tactics was after having a class in my college classroom before I had dropped out about what domestic violence was because I had been trying to... You needed education. You had education that helped you to start... I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but that's such a valid thing. You, you had some education that changed your perspective. Yeah. And it's, you know, no one thinks I'm going to fall in love with a batterer. No one thinks I'm going to be a victim. But for me sitting there and seeing domestic violence and the definition, my life was on a PowerPoint slide in front of me. And I never would have thought that's what I was going through. It was something else. It was something no one could understand. It was something unique to my partner. It was domestic violence. And once I understood, okay, this person acts this way because it's a control tactic, I could suddenly see the tactic under almost everything. And it really allowed me to feel a little bit more empowered, but at least feel more prepared in knowing what I was dealing with. And, and it helped me to start beginning to think of potentially leaving. And then once things got worse, the abuse progressed, it was a definite, I knew I had to leave. So yeah, just being aware, being conscious and taking a moment to really objectively look at your situation. And I'm a big journaler. So I've been in relationships since then where 
you know, you journal and you realize, okay, I've complained about the same thing four times now. (laughs) Something is not changing. So whether it's writing or just observing, yeah, it's really powerful to take that that really objective look and and then listen to your intuition and say, this is not right. It's not what I deserve. And um, it's time to do something about it. That's excellent. Excellent, excellent advice. Well, you you talk at school. So let's talk about that. I mean, this is, you've really, because I think obviously it's come from your experience as a young girl when you've got sucked into that. And, and, and you think of the age, I can tell you now, 13 to between the ages of 13 and, and 18 is the most difficult part of the entire human life cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's when we're the most vulnerable. And that's when a lot of these patterns can get set up and a lot of young girls can get sucked into abusive relationships without even realizing. And so you go to schools now and you talk about this. Could you tell us some of the you know, what what is what do you tell them? What are you saying to them? What is the and, and I mean we know this is so important, but from your experience, why and how and what? Give us the the inside information. Yeah, this is an issue that people do not realize affects young people at higher rates than any other demographic. Among teenagers, the statistic is one in three will be in an abusive relationship. So that's a significant that's scary. Yeah, it's it's huge. And for those who are not in these relationships, they know someone who is. They're friends with that person. So it's a huge issue. The most impactful thing I share is my story always. You know, I'll have kids in the audience nodding their heads or looking towards their friends because there's so many universal things of, you know, I stopped focusing on my grades or my homework because I was arguing with my partner. And those are the things that every teenager can relate to. So I try to share my story as honestly and openly as possible. And I really talk about the secondary consequences. And it's interesting because I have this one slide that I'll put up where I talk about all the other things that can happen when you're in a bad relationship, like having disordered eating habits, self-harming, anxiety, depression, and the kids will take their phones out and snap photos of it. Oh my gosh, all the signals, yeah. Yes. And, you know, schools do a great job of talking about anxiety, depression. I'm like, well, let's talk about healthy relationships first, and then we can probably prevent some of those struggles. So I teach them the common warning signs, which, like I mentioned, it's the isolation, it's the jealousy, it's the threats. And nowadays, there's such a big emphasis on the use of technology as a tool to manipulate. So it might be somebody who is monitoring your location. A really big thing right now is when you're in a partnership, it's almost expected that you share your location at all times because it's a showing of trust. But then I'll say to them, you know, trust doesn't require proof. And they're you know nodding their heads. And, and it's like, you just have to reinforce what they already know, that these things are not okay. So, you know, somebody who wants to have access to your phone passwords, your social media passwords, I really try to talk about the need for equality, respect, and most importantly, how to set boundaries. Because I think that's probably something most young people struggle with is how to set boundaries, not only with partners, but with friends, with really just being their authentic self, knowing what their needs are, knowing what will best support them and being able to put things in place to to keep themselves safe. So I share my story, I share the education, I give advice and you know the numbers of students who come up and share their stories or send me their stories on Instagram it's it's heartbreaking but like me with that speaker in my classroom for so many of them it is a catalyst it's it's a sudden moment of clarity awareness and then they end their relationships or they go seek counseling and it's really 
powerful, amazing work. So I, I feel grateful that I can, you know, use my experiences now to help other versions of me. Before I they love that. I what lo- I did. <laughs> no, I love that. I, and it's vital. And I want to thank you for doing that. Can you just talk a little bit more about the sort of just like you said, there's universal things and you mentioned a few. Can we just I just feel that people need to really hear those tips again. I know you said them in different mm-hmm. ways. And let's just talk about what like what would be a typical maybe six or seven points you would give a student in a school and what would you tell it what would be the advice that they would that you would tell them to go and follow up with what so what here, here's what to look for this is what you do because this is invaluable advice also think about parents too because it's great then if you're giving it to the students then also the, you know it's, what do you tell parents as well because parents also need to look out for the signals in their children as well and there will be the, as, as anxiety the depression the withdrawal the various different symptoms but are there specific ones that you could hone in on and then I'd also love you to talk a little bit more in terms of the advice part about the sort of boundaries that they need to set. So to recognize their boundaries and what would be examples. So examples of tips, examples of boundaries, because I know that will help people a lot. Yeah, if I could list the most common red flags, number one is definitely isolation. Someone who no longer sees their friends, families, doesn't do anything outside of their partner. The second would be jealousy and possessiveness, which can manifest in many different ways, not wanting you to be friends with an ex on Instagram, not wanting you to talk to, you know, other members of the opposite sex in front of them because it's embarrassing to them. That's a a second category. The third would be, I would say, manipulation and gaslighting. So maybe let's say you're a teenager and you're considering joining field hockey. Your partner might you know, be pretty manipulative and say, well, why do you want to join that club? And are you sure? And aren't you already complaining that your plate is full and you really want to associate with those people? So they get in your head and make you feel like you can't make effective decisions. And gaslighting is essentially, you feel like you're the crazy one, right? Like I put my keys down, I have to be at work. All of a sudden the keys are missing and turns out they hid them, but they don't let you know that. So manipulation, gaslighting, you feel crazy. This would kind of lead into the next one where all of a sudden you feel like you're walking on eggshells at all times. So constantly thinking about what your partner might do, say how they would react to sometimes the littlest things. I got to a point where if I would eat lunch without my partner, he would say that I was selfish and didn't care about his feelings. So literally everything. And then the other big area is threats. And that could range from, I'm going to crash my car into oncoming traffic. I'll kill myself if you leave. You want to do that? I'll post those photos of you online. The threats just run the gamut. And those are probably the most common common ones. And and like I said, to really reinforce, it's not all bad all the time. This stuff is countered by really great days where they apologize and they even seem really genuine in their apologies. And they might even try to change, but these behaviors are learned and they can't just one day decide to change them or decide to not do them. That's a whole process they need to do on their own. They need to go through. Yeah. there's, There's a reason why they're showing up like that and they need to do the work separately from you. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about all of these dynamics happening on a recurring basis, it is overwhelming for anyone to have to deal with this, where their partner is now infiltrating their mind, their thoughts, their actions. Like a virus. Mm. Absolutely. And that's why 
It's so damaging on someone who's dating that person. You just let yourself go in every way and your your life just becomes second to your partner's. So those are probably the most common red flags. Okay, that's excellent. That's really great. And then the boundaries, the examples of sort of boundaries that you can start setting. You know, I think a lot of people have heard of the concept of physical boundaries. You know, this is what I'll, I'll allow physically and not. And when you're younger, it's important to really think about that of, establishing communication around your physical space or even your belongings. You know, maybe your partner comes over and touches all your things or borrows stuff without asking or takes your car and says, well, what, you know, you're my girlfriend. You should be okay with me using your car. That's one thing. But I think a really important one that I like to teach is this idea of emotional boundaries of really having guidelines around what we will allow, like how we will what we will tolerate as far as treatment and, you know, respect or disrespect. Like I will not date anyone who uses this type of language towards me or someone who raises their voice when they shouldn't. And so really thinking about your emotional boundaries and what's going to create a space where you yourself are your best, you're supported, because we all know that a relationship should be built on equality, respect, communication, love, affection, and so really knowing what what rules you need to set to make sure you're creating that. So, I mean, with a teenager, it might be something as simple as, you know, listen, I do my homework from five to seven. If you text me, I'm not going to answer. And if you get mad at me, then I'm going to have to break up with you because this is something that's it. You just create a rule. You, you know, hope they stick to it. If they don't, you set a consequence. But most importantly, you have to honor your boundaries because if you are fluid with them and you you hold people to them sometimes and then not the next, your partner or anyone in your life is not going manipulate to you them either. Yeah. So really thinking about just what you need and and you know it's it's self care. It's putting yourself first, and that's not a selfish thing. It's understanding that you know you're only as as good to others or to your partner as you are to yourself. And you know healthy relationships come from two whole people coming together or, you know, being able to respectfully work on indifferences, not just trying to mold to what someone else needs at all times. That's where the imbalance occurs and it's where everything else starts to fall apart. So you have invested in the best mattress you can. You bought all the coolest sleep gadgets out there, but have you looked at your sheets? If you are anything like me, you will know how hard it is to get a good night's rest and wake up feeling refreshed mentally and physically in sheets that are subpar, tattered or just plain scratchy. This is why I love Bowl & Branch, a fair trade company that knows high quality sleep doesn't stop at your mattress. Their ultra soft, 100% organic, toxic free sheets are transparently sourced and produced in safe, fair conditions, which is so important to our globalized world. You'll feel a difference and know you are making one. My personal favorite bedding from Bolin Branch is their signature hemmed sheets, which is a bestseller for a good reason. They get softer with every wash. Not only are they buttery smooth on your skin, it's like sleeping in a moisturizer, but they are so lightweight with a 100% organic cotton sateen weave that's perfect for all seasons. My husband and I never get too hot or cold at night. To experience the best sheets you've ever felt, Choose Bowl and Branch. You can try them worry-free for 30 nights with free shipping and returns. And my listeners get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code 
Dr. Leaf at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowl and branch, B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details are in the show notes. I like the way you said not trying to mold yourself to someone else's need and let them mold you. So as soon as you feel like you molding yourself and they molding you, you know, that's like a massive red flag. I love those examples as well of the boundaries. I think that's so vital. And I also like the fact that when you have to stop and set those boundaries, there's self-regulation coming in. There's the ability to stand back and evaluate. So you're starting to train yourself to listen to your intuition and your wise mind, which is really great for all future relationships. So it's so good that you are doing this this work in schools at young ages because you're also helping them to set up themselves. They may not be exposed to that now. They may have been exposed to an element of it. But when they do go into a relationship, a more serious one, they've got some ground rules, which you're teaching them, which is not taught enough. I mean, this should be part of education. We all quit talking about it. Let's do the science and the math, but let's do more mind work and let's do more emotional work. Let's do more relationship work. You know, these kind of things are vital. So you're playing a very important role. I'd like to ask transition now to asking you about if someone you love or care, friend or whatever, is you you can see they're in the abusive relationship, but they they stuck. And how can you help them trend, get trans? I mean, we, no one, everyone has to make their own decisions. We all get that. But if you see someone that you love or care for is in a potentially abusive relationship, what do you do? I think I have two pieces of advice. The first one is to stay patient and stay present, understanding that leaving is a process. Yeah, you know, trying not to insert your own opinions or create a sense of urgency, that individual is already disempowered by their partner. You know, you don't want to show up and start disempowering them either with your words. So you really want to be patient and present. And the being present piece is really important because a lot of people will try to approach their friend or their sibling or their loved one and talk about this but they feel like a broken record. This person continues to date their abusive partner. And many people get so frustrated that they then walk away, they cut ties, but this only then lends into the isolation. So now even you're not there. But if you're patient, if you're present, if you're not confrontational, when that day comes that an individual is ready to leave, they're going to think of you first at a time when many people probably did walk away and abandon you in those moments. So being patient, being present. The other piece that can be really effective is a lot of us have a tendency to want to point out the flaws of the of the partner. And naturally, anyone who's in a relationship is going to want to defend the person they love. So one of the best things you can do instead of focusing on the partner is to shift the focus onto your friend, your loved one, and really getting them to try to self-reflect on how they've changed, but doing it in a really compassionate way. So, you know, hey, I'm just, I just noticed that, you know, you used to go to yoga with us every Saturday morning, but you haven't gone in months now. Is everything okay? You know, is everything all right with your relationship? Really getting a person to start to think about how they no longer are being themselves in the way that they were before this relationship is often a catalyst to start, you know, taking that observation, being a little bit more objective and rational. And it can be really powerful because the second you start attacking their partner, they're going to defend their partner and they're going to want to cut you out of their life. So yeah, just patience, presence, compassion, try to get them to self-reflect. That can be a really powerful approach. Wow. I love that. So in other words, what you are is a supportive presence that is not, because our instinct is, hey, that's wrong. Do this, fix that. We want to fix 
And it's all well-intentioned, but you can't fix anyone. Something I say so many times is mm. you can't fix anyone, you can only support. And what, so you, what you do, you're defining what the support looks like. And it's being there as this constant, reliable, they're there for me. I know that they know that this is not right. But despite that, they're not trying to fix me or judge me or tell me what I'm doing wrong. They're just there for me. And that builds up that support system, doesn't it? So that when you do leave the person, you know that you can, hey, this is, you, you'll be part of my plan. So it's so important that the support person doesn't keep quiet, in other words, unless speaker less spoken to and make it more of, hey, you missed out on the yoga kind of things. So it's a very different approach to going and that's wrong, that's wrong. Can't you see this? Can't you see that? Come on, get frustrated. And eventually, because if you're trying to force someone to do something and they're not doing it because they're not where you are and they can't see it like you can, you'll push them away. And that's the worst thing. You want to keep in their, in their orbit all the time and in their presence that they reach out to you. So that's incredibly good advice. That's incredibly good advice. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I mean, there's such a huge conversation that we haven't covered in relation to this because I'd love to just very briefly transition over for five minutes to your book that you've written because I think it's also very important. But is there anything that else you'd like to say in relation to abusive relationships and seeing the signals and signs or, you know, the work that you've done in the criminal justice system and so on? I think we've covered a lot, which is great. And I hope it was helpful for anyone listening. I think if there's any one lesson that I've had to still continue to learn and a piece of me that I've had to really build back up is, is being okay in expressing my own emotional needs. I think a lot of times we just want to be loving and supportive. And, you know, for me, I played the role of good girlfriend all the, all those years, you know, I wanted to just be a perfect girlfriend who never caused issues, never voiced my concerns, just was everything anyone could ever possibly want. You squashed yourself. We was Ashley in this whole picture. (laughs) Yeah. And I always thought that's what will create a healthy relationship is if I'm this easygoing, awesome girlfriend, express your emotional needs, put you first, you know, don't abandon yourself in the process. Don't become a people pleaser like I did for a very long time because it's not going to ever help you align with what your life's path is supposed to be, your purpose. You will only start to receive abundance and love and beauty once you finally start just returning to you instead of trying to please everyone else. And so that's my little final piece of advice on self-love and relationships. (laughs) That is amazing. And it's so good because I've often explained to people from the neuroscientific side of what you've just said is that you actually can't carry your brain is designed for you and your mind is designed for you. And we've got these 200 areas in our brain and it's all these specialized connections. And you've, you can do something that I can't do and I can't be in your head and you can't be in mine. And in a relationship, even though you build physically in each other's head, you can't take over what that other person is, is doing and who they are. So when you look after yourself, what you do is you actually, the looking after yourself enables you to be more empathic, more wise, more tuned into the other person. But the minute you take someone else's burden into yourself and you try and live that without actually looking after yourself, you start destroying yourself because you're bringing something into yourself that's not yours and you can't support. So it almost sounds like a, like a a paradox, but it's the truth. It's you, you have to build your own speciality, your own mind-brain connection, your own way that you function, your own tack on your biology, and then your empathy increases and you're more wise and you're more tuned in and you can see things more effectively. So self-care enables you to increase wisdom. So there's a lot of science behind what you said. So thank you for saying that. That's amazing. Okay, just quick transition over. You've written a book called, let me get the name of the book here. You know the name of your book, The Language of Time. 
And you talk about caring for someone with Alzheimer's and we all know that it's on the increase and we all know so much about it. And I've done research in this and work in this area, but I'd love to just hear what you say about taking care and why you wrote this book and a little bit about the book. Yeah. So a few years after putting my life back together, starting to rebuild my relationships with my family again, my mother developed Alzheimer's at 48 years old. So So early onset. Yeah, that's really early. Shocking. It wasn't genetic as far as we knew. Just one of the most devastating pieces of news to hear. And knowing very little about... Oh, that's okay. Thank you. You know, knowing very little about Alzheimer's, only that there was no cure. I just knew that time wasn't guaranteed. I didn't know if she would have two years, three years, 10 years. And so my daily mission was just to cherish and embrace as much time that I had with her as I possibly can. And so I was journaling and I was writing and and documenting and taking videos and photos. And eventually I turned it into a book and it really is a memoir just on the caregiving process, the ups and downs of taking care of someone with Alzheimer's, of family dynamics and struggles there. Also just being a young woman and trying to maintain a relationship. I was back in school at that point, how to practice self-care as a caregiver. And really in the end, I think just realizing that, you know, life is meant to be lived now, that we really need to just be in the present, appreciate our loved ones, go after our dreams, because you never know when time might be cut short. And I've definitely learned to live a fuller life you know, because of my traumas in many ways, you know, I already was kind of on that mindset of, you know, I lost time and now you have to make up for it. And then when my mom's life ended too soon, it was just another reminder of, you know, don't wait around, don't settle for unhealthy, unsupportive friendships, partnerships, environments, really make the most of your life. So the book is definitely... It was definitely a labor of love, and I'm so glad that it's out there. And interestingly, you'll probably appreciate this. While my mom was ill, I also believe in the power of our minds. And I used to think there's got to be some way that like, we can create this first Alzheimer's miracle. Like, Maybe I can get her to believe that she will get out of this place, that someday we're going to go on a trip and this will all be a, a crazy story. And if I can get her mind to think more positively, can we slow the Alzheimer's? I mean, it was such a... Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the mind and the brain and just the power we have to sometimes, you know, keep it healthy. But yeah, so that's the book. It's called The Language of Time. And the response has been amazing. It's all five-star reviews. I published it during COVID, you know, reframing a negative situation. I said, well, I can't travel right now, but I can publish my book. So, Oh, well, that's incredible. Actually, you're amazing. And that is just beautiful. (laughs) And I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk a little bit about that because it's such an important thing. And I love your concept of time because so many people who have gone through trauma like yourself and that's why I really wanted to hone in on this as a sort of closing statement that so many people that have gone through trauma feel like they've lost time and they get stuck in the grieving process of I've lost all that time and then they can't move beyond that and you with both of your stories and the work you've done now you've actually shown that yes you can't get that time back but you've actually changed how it's working out into your future so somehow you have managed to mentally work out the time that was lost in your life and with your mom, you've actually somehow made it up. And that's an incredible message. So I just wanted to end off with that wonderful thing. And thank you so much. You're amazing. You have a beautiful story and it's been an honor and a privilege to interview you. And thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure as well. 
I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.